as they say when you're on the plane, if you, you have boarded the flight for new tools, especially web-based practical tools, if this is not your destination, you might want to see the pilot now and find your correct flight. Change is nothing new in man's life. When he first appeared on the planet, the world around him changed constantly, but it was the regular, repeated change of the seasons. In himself, too, he saw from generation to generation the same familiar pattern recur of growth, maturity, and death. And then, one day, man used his hand to fashion a tool. And from the first moment he used that tool, he changed the pattern of change. No longer regular, repeated. The new tool brought permanent change, till the new world it had created was changed again by the next innovation. And as man's abilities grew, his world changed faster. stands for the interdependent world we have made for ourselves, where the rate of change accelerates every second because every one of man's inventions acts like a trigger to cause change. This was the first great trigger of change, the plough. It appeared maybe 7,000 years ago, and when it did, it gave people the chance to grow enough grain, not just to survive, but to provide a surplus to support craftsmen. And that triggered the beginnings of civilization. With enough food, the population expanded every year. Small villages sprang up and they too grew larger with the population. In the spreading fields around the villages, the technique grew of irrigating the land from the nearby river. As the grain supply increased, it had to be stored. The idea of the potter's wheel solved that problem. Who it belonged to demanded the development of writing. And building these irrigation ditches taught people the skills of engineering and mathematics that gave them in turn architecture. And the need to predict floods for irrigation brought realization that the flood was annual. That gave them a calendar their government could use to enforce law through a police force and an army who needed weapon makers to protect the wealth of the country from invasion country that was now an empire, all because of the plough. The thing that, that this starts us off, there are basically three parts to today's session. This starts us off with the why tools. And you can see that there are a couple of different answers to this. One is that tools are how we, how we extend our capabilities. Another thing is, as those of you who were here before and saw the, the cycling quotes that, ha that were up at the beginning saw, that they change us, right? When we think differently, we are able to do things differently, and we're able to communicate differently because of tools, and therefore they help us to, to tackle the most difficult challenges. And when they do that, then they uncover more challenges, right? So the plow tackles the problem of grain, and it leads to all these other challenges and all these other tools that help us to do more. Well, sustainability is, in a lot of ways, like that. 
we've managed to get a lot of the basic problems well enough defined that we know that they're problems. But the question is, how can we use tools to do more with that? And I, just a brief aside, I've been in the field 20 years now, and we have similar problems. The question is, how can we use tools to do better at the answers, not just our answers individually, but our answers as a field? To start with that, I thought we'd look at one of the tool, one very simple example of a tool that tackles a very common problem. Just a quick show of hands. People who have been in a company that said, you know, we know that employees care about sustainability or corporate responsibility, but we don't, we can't value that. We don't know, we can't put a number on that. Did that ever happen? Okay, so good number of people. This tool is simple, right? If you think about that plow, it wasn't the most complicated or beautiful looking plow. Didn't have all the features, you know. Couldn't, couldn't automatically update itself over the internet. But it, was, it did one thing well enough to free up capability for other things. Now this tool came out of a, a, a client actually who said, you know, it's too bad we can't put a number on the value for employees of sustainability. And they spent months trying to do it and eventually just, it didn't work. But one little tool can make a pretty significant dent in some of these problems, even if they're not fixed completely. So let's just do this together. Who's, who's here from a big company? All right. You put up your hand first. How many employees? 300,000. 300,000. Okay, that's pretty big. What company is that? HP. HP, all right. All right. Now, average productivity of new employees. This is when somebody joins, they don't know where the bathroom is. They don't know how to you know, change their email password. Even if they're perfectly good at what they've been hired to do, there are a lot of things they don't, are not good at and therefore they're not as productive, right? What's a good estimate for how productive they are as a percentage in the first six months? So month seven is 100% or month 12 is 100%. What is it the first six months? Just any, anybody who has an idea. 50, okay. All right. What percent of our employees should we say are US based? Somebody else. I did mention this was interactive, right? 40? All right, 40%. All right, and how fast is the domestic workforce growing, the US workforce? All right, since, since that will make things more difficult, let's, let's say that we're in between layoff rounds. How about international staff? How fast is that growing? Anybody, anywhere but the US? 5%. 5%, all right. 
Average U.S. salary, and this is the, the average of everybody. 70, all right? For 300,000 people? <laughs> well, for the total U.S. For the employees in the U.S. All U.S. employees. How about, well, I, there's a company, there's a company in my state, right, well, there's a company in my state that it has six figures and the average is 60. So, because, because remember, this doesn't have to be perfect and we should really be respectful of other people's nominations for numbers here. <laughs> So 120,000, 300,000 people times 40%. So 120,000 U.S. employees at this company, right? Now this is not HP anymore because we didn't put in how many percentage of U.S. employees for HP and whatever. But what we have here is a company with 300,000 employees and 40% are based in the U.S., 120,000 total U.S. employees, average salary of the nomination was 70%. Oh, now it's fine. No, now we get to go back. <laughs> Robert or Bob? Uh, Robert, I live in Connecticut. Okay. All right. So, so Robert's got thick skin. All right, that's good. What about average international salary? Any, anywhere but the U.S. How much is the average there? Thirty. Okay. What? No complaints. Everybody's being nice now. All right. And what's the attrition rate? And here, I'm sure it'll be different, but for the simplicity of the tool, we just gave one attrition rate here. Let's pick a number. 8%. 8%. All right. All right, now I'm not, let's, let's zoom in a little. Can you see that? All right, total compensation of this company is $16 billion. So non-trivial amount of payroll. Now the second line you see is the compensation that you have to pay to price someone away from someplace else, the premium over their existing salary. And this is just a number that we've put in here. It's actually, it is changeable, but for the purpose of this demonstration, we're not changing it. On average, that number is about 21%. It's just the way it is in the States. Well, it turns out that there's evidence that if you are a highly sustainable or responsible company, that that premium is lower for you. And we know about how much. That means that your total difference in recruitment premium is the difference between 73,000 and 58,000, 50, 73 million and 58 million, right? Because we're turning over 7%, 8% of 300,000 employees, 24,000 people a year. Now, yes. So, is the premium related to people wanting to work for that company? Yes. Or a discount on the compensation, or other? It's the simplest way to think of it is what sort of change in circumstance will it take to pry you away from Company A and make you land in Company B? There's a rule of thumb that it'll take some percentage minimum of salary increase. A lot of people used to say 
But it turns out that that number varies based on how much you want to work for a company that is sustainable and responsible. Not everybody cares, but those people who care, if you average them with the people who don't care, you end up with a small change in the recruitment premium required to tear somebody away. In my view, that means it's about how much you want to work for the company compared to staying where you are. No, it, it, well, it, it implies a discount on the premium. In fact, it's, I'm trying not to so much imply as state that there's a discount on the premium. You don't have to pay as high a premium to pull someone away if you're a company that is very responsible or sustainable. Right? So not so much an implication, but a flat-out statement, I'm hoping. And, and Daniel, the latest survey of MBA students that's done every year of 3,000 MBA students, if that's who you're seeking to hire, does state that they would take a 15% uh, reduction in their compensation to work for a company that met their environmental or social ideals. So th both might be true. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and one of the things is that this one here, you'll notice that the numbers are going to be lower than the highest you could imagine. Because even though this is not a 15% discount in compensation. I've assumed, for example, no discount in compensation at all. The reason for that is that right now, if people, if you're not doing this calculation, if you're at a company, if you're one of the people who raised your hand earlier and said you're at a company where people say, we know that it matters to employees, but we can't put a number on it. What's the implicit value you're giving this? The implicit dollar value is what? Zero which means any number over zero will make a difference in how people perceive it. So my personal style, and of course the tool can accommodate any style, is to use very conservative numbers. Because when all is said and done, if you're calculating it at all, and you're using very conservative numbers and you still get a much bigger number than people expect, then it's harder for them to discount it. If we look at the turnover difference, so there's two other things. Let's, let's do the productivity gain. The people are, well, here's another, another minor experiment. Uh, if you bring 100% of yourself to work every day, 100% of your maximum capability, raise your hand. Okay. All right. 90. Wow, you, you guys have some lucky companies. All right, 80. Keep your hand up if you, if you said 90. 80. 70. 60. My boss is going to get mad at me. 50. All right, 40 or less. Okay, so you can see that on average, so this is actually a more motivated group than usual. I'm guessing because we're at a sustainability conference, to be honest. The people who are involved in this field, they're more, more motivated, they're more engaged. But on average, Gallup does this thing every year with hundreds of thousands of people. And on average, they're sort of medium engaged. So, you know, as many as a fifth or a quarter, or sometimes more, are actively disengaged. And most of the rest are kind of moderately engaged at best. Well, it turns out if you turn that into a, an overall engagement score and you're very conservative again, you get something like 80%. And it turns out that there's actual research about the improved engagement level of people who work in a company that's very socially environmentally responsible. 
and using, again, a very, very small delta in order to be conservative, that's what this difference is here. This is about 2%, two percentage points of difference in engagement between 80 and 82. And yet, when you're talking about a $16 billion payroll like this company is, that's a lot of money. And then there's turnover, or attrition. And here we're assuming that it goes down 6%, not 6 percentage points, but 6%, right? So 6% off 8% is about half a percent. So we're half a percentage points. We're looking at about 7.5%, right? Which is still over 1,000 people. And then we can change this number, but the most conservative number that I've seen for the average recruiting and training cost as percent of total compensation is 50%. You'll see numbers as high as 300, including from some really well-known HR consultancies. But in keeping with my style, I just picked the very lowest number that I could find that was backed up by research. And then there's vacancy issues, because you are not, you don't hire people who are not going to make you more money than you're paying them, so vacancy is a cost. And it's a bigger cost because you have more people vacant if they turn over more. And then new employee productivity, this is because they're only 50% productive for a while. Every time you hire somebody new, you end up spending the same amount or more, but you end up getting less from them. Anyway, if you add all that up, it's, can you see that number at the bottom there? Can everybody see? So 426 million dollars per year. Now you can say that it's not really a $60,000 a year workforce and that international workers are actually much more like 6,000 than 30 and that this is a really gigantically big company and okay, but what if it's a quarter of that? What if it's a measly $100 million a year? Right? Comparing that to the zero that we implicitly give it when we don't give it a value, that's kind of a big change. And in fact, when I did this for a company smaller than, I'm sorry, what's your name? Svelana. Svelana. Svelana works for HP. I did it for a smaller company. It's still, you know, still in the hundreds of thousands, but much smaller than HP. They were kind of shocked at how much it was, even though it was not nearly this much. So the point of this is, not that this calculation is exactly right, and not that this company that we've created by adding different numbers from different people actually exists. The point is that this tool took something from the realm of, I don't know how to do that, or it can't be done, or we can do it, but it'll take months, and by the time we do it, it'll be out of date and whatever, to an interactive conversation about real numbers that can be had. Somebody can say, well, no, that's ridiculous. It's not 82% with, here's, you can see the productivity with engagement effects, right? It's not 82%, it's not a two percentage point gain. It's a one percentage point gain. Okay, you just enter the number. You know, that's all you have to do. And that's part of why tools. Right? And what I want to do is not just talk about tools from the point of view of cool videos or what I think is a cool tool, but hey, 
to each their own, right? But to get from you your perspective about what it is from all of us, what it is that tools can do to benefit us, because that'll help us guide our conversation. Right? We've got lots of different people who have expertise. We've got some tools to show you. But fundamentally, this is an exploration of how we can use tools for sustainability. And every one of us has our, our own experience with our own companies or clients or customers or what have you saying, you know, I bet a tool that did this would be useful or I really wish when I was doing this, I had a tool. So we're gonna do that. This is on the Google Sheets. Before we do that, any questions or final comments about this? Well, the, the documentation for this is, I have the documentation behind this. Um, there's a bunch of research. It takes, you know, months to find this, this data. And, and then, you know, people don't always believe it, and that's why you make the cells editable. People say, oh, that's ridiculous. It's, you know. And, and that's the key thing, right? So there's a bunch of, uh, there's a, for example, New Metrics has, uh, Sustainable Brands, excuse me, has a group that's, do, that's focused on employee value of sustainability. And they have a bunch of data, including some non-public data, where people will say, in my company, this is how we think about it or whatever. And that'd be your best place to start. Anything else? Yes? Um, why do you choose this specific one? Like, what is the why I choose this specific tool, you mean? Yeah. Because it's simple, right? In a few minutes, with one input page, and no complicated models, no theories, no, you know, it's all very concrete. We know that when someone joins your group, they start asking you, where's the bathroom, and how do I change my email password, all this stuff. And we didn't even include their effect on your productivity, which is another real effect, right? Simplified it down. And yet, even though it's as simple as this, is this, a, does this provide a fulcrum for that conversation and for that increased respect for the value of sustainability? I think so. Yes? Um, baseline via CSR, on the CSR bit, what are you, what are people most, um, what is the increase in productivity due to? Right, because I imagine there might be diminishing returns on investment in social products or services if it's all right, people just volunteering, you're happy with that, Okay, well, I'll, I'll give a quick answer to that, and then for the detail of this specific model and tool, we should take it offline. There's plenty of, this has been something, I, I think I did the first one of these three or four years ago, so there's plenty that we could talk about. But, but, the, but to come back to the question, what, what's your name? Carolyn. The question Carolyn asked, why this one? Because it's simple and concrete. So to give you the brief answer to that question, there probably is diminishing returns. It's actually assumed so in this model because the, the, the client I did it for already had a very strong sustainability and CSR reputation. And so people were already, they were, the question was what about doing more? You can look at, there's some research done, Gallup did some and, some, and there was some research done by one of the big uh, 
uh, HR firms out of Canada. And you can kind of see what's the difference in engagement based on who you're talking about. Some people just, they don't really care about CSR and sustainability. And, and based on where you are already. So what's the marginal value of an improvement in CSR? And it turns out also that it's not just if you are engaged, of course that helps. But if you know that he's engaged, that actually helps. Even if, you do, even if all you do is admire, it's like rooting for your home team in sports. You're not getting on the field, but do you feel better when they win? Actually, yes. Anything else? To me, this is a, a case of battling famous sayings. Because on the one hand, there's a famous saying that a lot, of what, a lot of what matters can't be measured, which may or may not be true. On the other hand, there's the saying that you hear all the time, which is, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And what that means, uh, at least where I've been, and you know, your mileage may vary here, is that if, if you can't measure it, people think you can't manage it, and they don't give you a seat at the grown-ups table. Is it that challenge to be overcome? What, the ability to measure things? No, the, the, the fact that if you can't, you're assumed to not be able to manage it, and so you don't get a seat at the table. Yes, and, and, and part of the value of tools and building the measurements in is that now you do get a seat at the grown-ups table. Now, I mean, consider the conversation. We should do more CSR because employees care versus we should do more because here's the value that it provides to us. We're under-investing, right? You could, you could take that number and you could look at the ROI. Anybody think that this hypothetical company is spending half a billion dollars a year on CSR? It's unlikely, right? which means that you're probably getting a multi-hundred percent or maybe thousand percent ROI. Now that's a different conversation, right? If you're saying we're not at the point of diminishing returns yet, or you know, we're, the next dollar is only worth three dollars in return and not four, now the conversation about investment is a little different than we should do more because people care. You may or may not win that conversation, but it's different. Yeah, so you can, there's a long, well, I, you know those people who say, one day I'm going to write a book, right? So, so one day I'm writing a book called Immeasurement. How, how to measure things that are immeasurable. Because I keep, for the past, whatever, 15 years, people have said, this can't be measured, and I've figured out how to measure it. And the thing that I can't measure, because it's too small, is the chance that I'll actually do what I say I'm going to do and write the book. <laughs> I would also offer, Daniel, that it's useful within a company to point out that there are plenty of things that remain unmeasured. For decades, marketing campaigns have gone on that were a bet that there was some return on investment. And no one, until the era of social media and Google Analytics, could actually measure the number of eyeballs or clicks. And yet, every company ran marketing campaigns. So I think in some respects, sustainability is held to a higher bar in terms of measurement. And it's often useful to point out that these trends already exist uh, and that sustainability can be measured, but what can't be 
might simply be in that class along with other activities like marketing. I'll just say that was a better answer. <laughs> uh, okay, so the plan is to uh, is to now talk about the different kinds of tools. The bit, the first bit, was sort of why tools, and. The example was a calculation tool, and that's the most common tool that we think of, right? But I think there, it seems to me that there are several different kinds of tools. And in fact, we're going to see several different kinds of tools today. The kinds of tools, one of them is the calculation tools, right? But another is information tools. How do we find information? And if you think about this, you know, Google, Alibaba, some of these places make pretty good money helping us find stuff, tools for finding things. And then there are thinking tools, tools that help us to think differently. What I want to show you is an example of a demo of one of these types of tools that is designed to help us, that's kind of a combination of those two. And then, We'll look at an actual live working one, not just a technology demo, but an actual live working one that helps to deal with the complexity of some of the frameworks that are out there, like helps us gather information around GRI, helps us do reporting and management, and so on. OK. So very brief. And then Welcome to this to overview of the SIF tool, the Sustainability Information and Framework Tool. As its name implies, SIFT is designed to help us sift through the large amounts of information, resources, and tools out there around sustainability so that we can find what we need more quickly, so that we can use what's already out there and not reinvent the wheel, and so that we can think more comprehensively and creatively and therefore be more effective in our sustainability efforts. At the highest level, SIFT divides things into six categories. Issue, project, for example, new product development, resource, for example, oil, business such as ROI, execution such as how to make things go more smoothly, and organization, for example, governance. If I click on issue, you see four kinds of issues, environment, social, governance, and financial. Under environment, you see different kinds of environmental issues, carbon, energy, and so forth. If I click on habitat, you see it drills down further into different kinds of habitats. Underneath each of these would be information about that specific type of habitat. I click home, we're back here, but this time we'll choose organization. Under organization, we have governance and financial. Let's choose governance. Underneath governance, we see one of the thought starter values of SIFT, helping us to think about many different categories of information, resources, and tools that would be valuable in making our governance of our sustainability efforts stronger. For this first example, we'll pick strategy. Again, you can see a bit of a thought starter different categories of information, resources, and tools around making our strategy better, such as vision, role, goals, and so on. If we choose role, which is the way the organization chooses to advance the field of sustainability overall, we see for this simplified example three different types, frameworks, resources, and tools. Let's choose frameworks. Here you can see there are action orientation frameworks, time, and leadership, 
let's choose action and this takes us to an actual tool that's a framework that we can use for example an organization can be internally focused around supporting the improvement of its own internal sustainability performance or externally focused helping to catalyze improvement in others sustainability performance internally they can be focused on creating new things or promoting existing things and those can be resources or knowledge generating four different ways that they could internally advance sustainability externally it's the same basic orientation of create promote resources and knowledge but the results are a little bit different so instead of investing internally for example it's funding others externally if we click back and then back again this time we're going to choose execution let's do that and you can see again a bit of a thought starter framework around different types of execution issues we'll choose new initiatives and here you see a number of different activities that are important to set up a new initiative so it can be executed properly starting with context analysis designing it managing it evaluating it creating the business case for it communicating about it evolving it over time and involving stakeholders if we choose context for this simplified example, we see three different types. Research sources, tools, and issue areas. Let's choose tools. Here we have assessments, calculators, and reporting. Under assessments, we have environmental, social, and financial. Under environment, we have energy and carbon, water, and waste. Let's say we're interested in water. Water, energy, food efficiency, water footprint, and water mapping. If we choose water, energy, food efficiency, here we see different types of information, resources, and tools. In our case, assessment tools. We click on food practices assessment and it takes us to an actual tool that we can use to select the kinds of best practices we're interested in to check off the ones we have and to then figure out using the tool what we should do next so as you can see sift has helped us to drill down information for example around habitat drill down to frameworks for example around strategy and drill down to tools for example around best practices in food management Okay, so a different kind of tool, right? One focused on helping us sift through different kinds of information, find different things. What we'll do now is look at one, oh, uh, just one little note about this. Sloan and the Sloan Management Review are actually putting together a consortium to build this thing that you see. So if there's interest, Jason Jay is here in the back. He'll also be visible tomorrow talk to him or uh, and you can become involved in getting this thing actually built what we'll do now is Deborah will talk about any questions about this by the way before we move on no at the moment this is a demo yep the consortium and and at the moment it's just some ideas about what would be in the framework and what would be in the tool. The idea is to bring together leaders in academia, business, research, and so on, and have them put their thoughts together to create one framework that everybody can agree on, that includes everyone's insights, and then one tool that actually makes that framework usable. Anything else? So that would be one comprehensive tool or a market. Yeah, so it's a gateway. So, yeah. 
So that is the, the aforementioned Jason Jay. Could you all hear him? Okay. Okay. Anything else about this? Okay. In that case, then let's. Deborah, you want to take over? Sure. Great. Well, good to meet you all. Um, so my name is Deborah Stern, and um, my company is 2020 Strategies Consulting and, and Project Development Firm. Um, I'm representing here today Tenoxio, which is a European-based company that has developed a very um, interesting tool for data management, collection management, and reporting. So really does a lot of what you were speaking about earlier and some of you were, were speaking to. And we, um, uh, Tenoxia, with sponsored a research project with uh, graduates from the uh, Columbia Sustainable Management Program, and I'm going to be referencing some of that research as well that provides a larger perspective on uh, this field. So we've been looking at tools to improve uh, corporate social responsibility. I'm using that label, CSR, to embrace sustainability today, just to keep it simple. Um, CSR data capture and reporting. And um, this included looking at the existing literature, 57 interviews and surveys um, with managers, stakeholders, and consultants, a few case studies, and a benchmarking study of the tools that are out there. So. You know, I think, again, it's really important to always think about what's the big why? Why are we doing this? And really the bottom line um, from my perspective is that metrics are essential to really build and drive a robust, coherent market so that we can actually achieve a sustainable world. And um, that tools are really essential for accelerating the process of our developing those metrics and really making it prolific in the marketplace so that we really can drive drive this um, market, this system, to, to sustainability. Oh, I do. Um, so we just looked at what are the drivers of CSR report, reporting. Um, and I think it's interesting to note that, you know, this field really took root earlier and more robustly in uh, Europe and has been very much driven by regulatory um, environment, regulatory drivers. In, in the US, it's much more of a voluntary driven situation um, through different reporting frameworks, GRI, SASB, accountability, et cetera, ISO. And it's, it's very stakeholder uh, driven. And I think that, um, as we'll see, that has, that shows in the rates of adoption of tools and of, of sustainability reporting and, and the, tool, the kinds of tools that are being used to, to facilitate that. So in Europe, uh, you know, the rate of adoption was, was significantly faster. Um, what we're also seeing is that reporting is um, becoming more prolific across worldwide and um, however, the quality of the data that's being collected and reporting is much stronger in Europe than in the U.S. And by the way, I can make these slides available, so um, happy to do so. Um, the, 
the and and I, I, I will say by the way this report is going up on a website um, we don't have the white paper completed yet but the PowerPoint is and I'll give you a reference for that website uh, at the end of this but in any case um, the reporting rates are converging but the US definitely is lagging behind Europe in terms of the quality and what what we're seeing both through evidence and through interviews is that in particularly in North America our focus has been on just report just disclose you know that in and of itself is a check mark that you're sort of doing the right thing and there is less of the drivers in the marketplace for reporting quality data or reporting data that's meaningful and I and as a result we're seeing that the use of tools in the US are pretty um, are still very underdeveloped. The, ma the majority are still using um, Excel type spreadsheets. Um, there's some use of an adopting use of internalized customized systems like their Oracle sister, their SAP system. Um, a little bit of use of software solutions like Tenoxia and, and others, Credit 360, um, and a lot that are not using any system at all or tracking yet at all because of whatever reasons. Um, some of which I believe is, is just lack of understanding and awareness and I'll speak about that towards the end. So we really have this, um, we're really seeing through, through this research that companies are settling for very inferior solutions to tracking and reporting data. And some of the features that are possible through tools, some more than others, um, are, for example, that it can be cloud-based and multi-users. Um, when you're working with an Excel spreadsheet, you're like, you can't have multiple people inputting data. You're trying to collect Excel spreadsheets on many different formats and cohere them in some way. It's, it, and that is what people are doing, believe it or not, and it's, it's uh, not very functional. Um, and, or it's very time and labor and cost intensive, I'll put it that way. Um, and customized, another feature is customized um, to track the specific company KPIs and, and their strategies and their relationship to different frameworks like GRI or a, any, any ISO. Ability to attach specific supporting documents to keep it all very verifiable and management um, to be able to check that, ability to manage workflows, assign tasks and send reminders and all that, customized end user training, getting to the, a point that was made earlier, um, integration with other corporate systems, a system that's in place for validating data and flagging data inconsistencies, and easily the ability to easily export data into higher level and auditable reports. So these are the kind of features that are available through tools like Tenoxia. So I'm just gonna take um, a few moments to share specifically about Tenoxia. And I, um, essentially, um, Tenoxia is a, is a European-based company that is just beginning to um, uh, make its services available in the US. It um, provides a customized cloud-based software and service solution that helps companies manage beginning with EHS compliance, that was where the company got its start in EHS compliance and has developed a whole platform for CSR sustainability. 
um, reporting as well. There, it's used in over 5,000 locations currently in 70 countries and um, has, has really proven, I'm going to give you a, a case study, the impact it's made for the companies and for, for the users. It's configurable to any framework um, or KPI and um, is, is really a sort of a whole system solution, which I'll explain. But basically, um, environmental, social, and financial data is, is gathered from multiple sources in the company um, or subsidiaries or even could be adapted for, um, for uh, um, supply chains. Uh, users and and is reported and interactively with management to help manage uh, the data but also to inform decision making and then of course converted into reports that can be used externally as well um, the the process I had another slide that shows more about the configuration but let me just give you a sense this is a um, a software platform and it comes with consulting uh, support because the process of configuring a platform like this um, is key to making it really functional. Um, so all, of the, all of the, the basics are here, but the, the configuration, understanding what the, the business objectives are is, is key for, for configuring. And that has to do with you know, what kind of data, what kind of frameworks we want to um, align to, what sort of key performance indicators, um, what kinds of, it could be multiple frameworks that you want to be able to report into, but making sure that we have all the questions, the kind of metrics that we're seeking to collect. And then where does that come from in the company? And if you're talking about a, um, a company that's, a multinational, whether it's a huge multinational or mid-size, they're, they're coming from different countries, different languages spoken, different um, types of operating facilities, offices and factories, etc. So all of that needs to be configured. Um, then the, uh, the platform is constructed um, using the, the basic software and the platform is set up and then some important and strategic training of the users and that's again how do you get people to actually do this and feel comfort with it is is really quite important addressing your earlier issue and then it's uh, piloted tested and ultimately operationalized um, and that process actually is is because we're working with a, a, a tool and again, I think I, I want to keep underscoring the value of tool here. Um, that process can happen in a very streamlined way. So um, it can be between, you know, essentially within a two to three month period, one can get that up and running. And, and that makes a huge difference when you're, as anyone who's tried to do this um, without a, the help of a tool uh, has found. You're trying to create it from scratch. Um, it, it just so happens Tenoxia has a particularly strong reputation for the fact, speed of implementation and, and a track record doing this. I don't. I do have some other screenshots, and I could do like I, the demo that I have is 
is not as fancy as the one you just did or is as clear. So I'm just going to speak. Um, this is not great, but basically it's a very simple, we, we call it, it's um, not fancy in terms of the user interface, so there aren't, it's not like graphically gorgeous and all of that, but very functional and very user friendly. So that you're basically, and like any tool, you're just going in, you're finding, um, you're setting up the parameters of the issue, we're setting up, one of the things that, that this can do is, um, um, data management so that the issue, and this, again, uh, tools enable this to be done. You can set up the parameter of what's a reasonable um, sp sort of spread that a, that a data point would be in, and if it falls outside of that, if the person entering it uh, enters it outside of that, it will kick it out for, for verification. It will require a manager to verify the data, looking at documentation that's attached, et cetera. Um, there's, there's a whole, obviously a whole way to cohere this data, um, create visualized graphs and charts to communicate it, um, report, create whole reports that then can go be used for management or for communications, et cetera. So I can, I'm going to talk about a case study. I have very little time here, which is why I'm whipping through this. but. Um, I want to use this case study to give you a flavor for, for how this has actually been adopted by a company. Um, the, the company we're talking about is Geopost, Group Geopost. It is um, a private express delivery like FedEx in Europe, 24,000 employees providing express delivery, 814 million parcels, 830 operational sites, 26,000 vehicles. So talking about a substantial company, it happens to be a subsidiary of a much larger parent company, La Poste. Um, and their business needs were to integrate data into the parent company, um, the parent company CSR report. The parent company has had its own CSR reporting platform and uses its own tools. At, but but GeoPost was not happy with using those tools, frankly. They didn't feel it was really meeting their management needs and they wanted something different and better for them. Um, so they, and they also wanted to pilot a new corporate-wide initiative to build an environmental management program, an ISO 14001 program where they could, um, which included measuring the GHG emission reductions. Um, and they wanted to support their external communications, their audit, um, and their, their compliance. And before Tenoxia, they were doing it by Excel spreadsheets. And it was taking them easily two full-time, you know, employee uh, weeks um, every quarter to collect data that was coming from multiple Excel spreadsheets, verifying the data as best as they could, you know, making sure there were no mistakes in their multiple Excel spreadsheets while they were trying to cohere them, et cetera. Um, and it was very stressful, it was very time consuming, and they couldn't really assure data quality, which has all kinds of implications in terms of your marketing and your messaging and your, your, um, and your reporting to stakeholders, et cetera. Um, after um, the use of this tool, um, 
they really, you know, the cost efficiencies were significant. They're down to you push a button and you get the report because all of that um, information is in there and it's already verified. Um, it efficient, it's efficiently avoids mistakes and, and as the manager of this report um, gave her tremendous peace of mind. <laughs> um, more, this is a really important one. It also really motivated the data providers because as we've said, garbage in, garbage out, the, the um, and no data in, no data out. So the data reporters are much more motivated to input because they know the data is being used and used in a way that they can see because they're getting reports back and they can, they can see this. Um, they've improved their headquarters and subsidiary relationship and it's allowed a bigger picture to granular analysis so that they're really using this now for management decision making and for decision making about where they're placing their investments. And they're also now able to measure and compensate for reduced GHG emissions. So all of this is happening. We don't have a, a, a dollar fig value attached to all of this, which is um, actually something that in the interview she was like, hmm, maybe we should be um, attaching, figuring out how to measure the value of, of this. But that that's, requires the next step, the next tool. Um, the overall business value is is really, and she really said, this is a true tool. And I, did, I was not using the word tool, tool even. Um, that it really liberates the team for, for the work that they need to do, for reducing their footprint, for informing management, for running a, 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 an effective business. Um, it drives per business performance. It guides decision making. It mitigates against reputational and operating risks. Um, and it helped, in this case, they felt it helped to have environmental people building a tool versus IT people building a tool, which I thought was an interesting statement. So I just want to um, close with what we see as possible with tools. And I'm happy to answer further questions, of course, about the tool here or offline or during the rest of the session. Um, our case studies have shown that implementing a CSR tool can have real value to companies. It, this is not just about looking good outside, but real value to the management um, and in the company. And it's not just about disclosure and compliance. Also, good CSR tools drive the momentum of investment and action to achieve a sustainable world. I think that um, the kind of investments the clients are making now is it proves that. And, um, and people have a perspective now that it's not a headache or it's not too cumbersome or too complicated and an unproductive task, but something that is adding value to the business. And unfortunately, there are still um, several gaps in, in, um, let's see if I can, in this. Um, and I'm just looking for my note on that, but let me just speak to, I think one of the key gaps is lack of awareness. I mean, we're a very small sample here in this room, but just based on the, the earlier con um, dialogue, I, I have this sense that people don't know that tools exist to actually get this job done and um, that can be, be built upon that have many of these qualities. 
Um, there's a lack of understanding, um, there's a lack of a, a, a market for this, these tools, which is um, to, to the point that, that, uh, that you were making. And there's, um, I think that the, um, I'm, I'm sorry, because I had a, some important point here I want to make. Data acquisition is very much slowed as a result of there not being these tools. And it's, and there's a, as a result, there's a lack of buy-in from management on CSR in general, the sustainability uh, goals, but also on the value of implementing these kinds of system-wide um, management capabilities. So um, I think that the, the need for tools and their adoption is, is very, very real. And um, I will be happy to speak further about it. And I, I definitely uh, want to endorse the concept of a, a kind of a marketplace for tools because I think that um, I think that there's a lack of awareness in general of what's possible. Um, I am going to give you the URL for the um, research, and that will also drive you to more information about Tanoxia. And I'm here, you know, for the rest of the day and the rest of the conference, and um, have business cards and have uh, some information that I can give you. So. Thanks, and if there are any, we have time for questions, or? All right, so I'm gonna use this, because normally I don't, but I'm getting over a cold. So if I continue to clear my voice, I apologize for that. My name is Emma Stewart. I'm with Autodesk, uh, a company some of you probably know best for its flagship product, which is AutoCAD. Uh, we are an ancient software company. We're 30 years old. <clears throat> based out of the Bay Area in San Francisco, California, global, Fortune 1000 company. Uh, we have actually over 100 products now in our portfolio. And I'm going to talk about one that is not a product, but rather a free and publicly available based tool that we put together uh, with some good help uh, from Daniel Aronson. And I want to give you a bit of background of how we came to this, because the fact that you're at this conference means you care deeply about good design of metrics, and so you likely want to understand the rationale for us putting out yet another form of metric, uh, and a very complicated one, I will admit to that. So the uh, background here really comes in three different uh, rationales. One was that when it came to climate change, despite what you might hear on Fox News, I had never seen scientific consensus this high. It was unprecedented. And the recommendations from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change were actually extremely clear as to what was needed to keep the planet under a two degree Celsius temperature rise, which means uh, a roughly 450 part per million uh, intensity in the atmosphere. And to do so required about an 85% reduction in absolute emissions in order just to keep the planet uh, below two degrees. And if you look at this slide, Two degrees ain't no picnic. Three degrees is not something any of us want to experience. So that was clear. The scientific consensus was there. The second point was that the current practice, when we looked out at what other companies were doing in terms of target setting, ripe for disruption. In fact, 
most likely, if you had to guess who was setting targets at these companies, it was the PR department or the marketing department or the finance department in charge of capital budgets because they knew that they had already budgeted enough to get those reductions under their belt. And I found those thoroughly uninspiring, if not a little bit irresponsible. And our suspicion, unfortunately, was confirmed because when the CDP studied the Global 100's uh, corporate carbon targets, they found that if all Global 100 companies set targets along those lines, uh, the reductions necessary to achieve climate stabilization would occur 39 years too late. So current practice was ripe for disruption. The third reason was that regulatory expectations were generally, and I use that term very carefully, uh, increasing. And this was true both for us, but as a software company, really not exactly in the crosshairs of regulators, but mostly for our customers. Now, at a global level, and I think this is a very unique week to talk about uh, global frameworks for climate change, at a global level, even the Kyoto Protocol, which has not been uh, renewed, were it to be renewed through the year 2025, would still only achieve 1 30th of the reductions that are required. Okay, so at a global level, we were in the wrong ballpark, but what we were seeing was that at the sub-national level, whether it was cities or states or regions, there were regulations that were starting to bite for some of our customers, our customers being uh, architects, engineers, designers, building owners, infrastructure owners, manufacturers. And so our thinking was, well, even if these regulations don't affect us and we're therefore not required to set a target that is ambitious, uh, they will affect our customers. So we can help our sales team open the door with customers by setting a target that is so unique and that is so science-driven that actually they are viewed as a trusted advisor by those customers. So we uh, landed then on a process that <coughs> we now call CFACT, which stands for a Corporate Finance Approach to Climate Stabilizing Targets. And what you see here on the screen is what we found when we looked out at the non-CFACT types of targets. For one, they were um, generally grounded in little more than guesstimates of what was feasible uh, within that company, uh, or seemed reasonable, again, in a press release. Two, they were very short-term. We're dealing with an incredibly long-term phenomenon here in climate change, and you had targets coming out that were two, three years in nature. So even when Dell set a very aggressive operational target for their greenhouse gases, there was no guarantee that when they renewed it, it would be along that same trajectory. So they were getting away with a short-term target for a long-term phenomenon. We only saw long-term targets really uh, in Europe uh, in line with the 2020 goals there. They also were not comparable. So they differed not only in whether they were absolute or intensity-based, but also the fact that uh, what triggered a rebaselining differed by company. So for some companies, if you did a big acquisition, you triggered a new carbon footprint and you started all over again. This made it absolutely impossible to compare targets in progress company to company. And we also felt that absolute targets had many benefits. Climatically speaking, they were what was needed. That was what the scientific community was telling us. Um, but they tended to be smaller, so the press team didn't like it as much. It didn't look like an eye-poppingly large number. And they were very inflexible. 
So the CFO had trouble swallowing these because whenever you saw organic growth or a major acquisition, how are you going to contend with that new absolute, uh, with that new absolute target? In contrast, we saw intensity targets were becoming very popular, and President Bush himself made them popular by um, initiating them within the federal sector. Uh, but they were crafted poorly. They were using denominators that were, again, not comparable. Uh, and in some cases, when we ran the numbers on intensity targets, they actually masked uh, an absolute increase in emissions. So we felt that they were misleading to the undiscerning eye. So from a prior project, I was familiar with work at BT that was done by uh, Chris Tuppen and Kevin Moss there, in which they came up with the concept of a carbon stabilization index. The idea being that a company should contribute to the reductions required for climate stabilization in line with their contribution to economic growth. And I liked that concept, but what they had built was not transferable in uh, practice. And so I uh, challenged myself and a team member who had just come on board, we were a two-man team at the time, to find a way to make this into a methodology that others could use, that we could adopt internally, that would be based entirely on 100% publicly available information. Being a scientist by training, that was very important to me because I wanted other people to be able to run the methodology and get the same result out the other end. Um, and so we developed these principles. One was that the methodology needed to be fair, meaning agnostic as to your starting point. So maybe you were in a very carbon intensive sector, or maybe you were in a carbon light sector like software. Our feeling was we were not going to pick winners and losers. Indeed, carbon intensity would be set across all of those sectors equally. And so that was one uh, principle that I think is not coming through necessarily in some of the discussions you're now seeing around science-based targets. And I can elaborate on that at the end if you like. A second principle was what I've uh, described, that it was verifiable. So even the BT uh, concept, which I thought was really uh, state-of-the-art and was used internally at BT, it was based on numbers that only BT had access to, which made it very difficult for anyone to dig into or verify um, what they'd done, let alone copy what they'd done. And the third principle was flexible. As I mentioned, we don't want companies to constrain growth as a result of setting a carbon target. We want them to grow despite their carbon target. We want to decouple these two trajectories. And so as a result, flexibility to things like inaccurate financial forecasts or organic growth in acquisitions, um, or maybe deviations of your performance in any given year, we thought was something that corporate finance and the CFO would really appreciate. So hence, corporate finance approach to climate stabilizing targets. We imbued this methodology with generally acceptable accounting principles, such that a CFO would immediately recognize some of these principles as his own. So I won't go into the details of exactly how to calculate this, because we actually went to great lengths to make this publicly available, to provide tutorial videos, and they are all online uh, now at our website, autodesk.com backslash sustainability solutions. I'll also mention that um, with Daniel's help, we have tailored this for cities. And the reason being that as I've worked increasingly with 
the municipal and infrastructure owners, I've realized that they are going through exactly what corporations have been going through over the past five to eight years, which is an exercise in target setting often devoid of climate science. And so uh, Manchester was one example of a city where they set a, a target that happened to be very close to what climate scientists would have recommended. And when I asked the mayor there how he came to that target, he said, oh, well, the Tyndall Center, Center on Climate Change Research is at the University of Manchester, and they created it for us. And if those of you who are familiar, the Tyndall Center is world class in, in atmospheric sciences. And I thought, well, how many mayors have a center like that that they can rely upon? It's the minority. Um, and so we realized that maybe tailoring this to city governments would be valuable. And the city of Palo Alto has actually since adopted this. Um, their chief sustainability officer was just telling me last week that he put this methodology in front of his city council. And he is using it to spur them towards an even more aggressive target, a target even more aggressive than what the scientific community uh, would have him do. So he, he likes it as the scientific underpinning uh, for what he's, uh, what he's postulating there. But in essence, uh, you take your uh, contribution to GDP, you um, divide your carbon footprint by that. We use as a proxy for contribution to GDP your gross profit, which is your revenues minus cost of goods sold. And I'm happy to debate any of these points with you one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. But I would encourage you to look at the white paper and the tutorial first. Um, and then you use this anchor here at 2050, which is, again, uh, the IPCC's recommendations of 85% reduction uh, in order to stabilize us at two degrees. And then we just use uh, a fancy trick in Excel called Goal Seek to uh, make sure that your trajectory uh, has that nice sloping curve to it. And then we introduce this idea of a five-year sliding window so that in any given year, Maybe you do miss your target, but you can bank it into the next year. But you can't procrastinate for 10 or 20 years. You have to keep that within a five-year sliding window. When I checked with WRI and EPA and these other folks who were quite excited about this methodology, they felt very comfortable with five years. Um, so then you uh, can adjust it on an annual basis if your footprint changes. Uh, you report on the reductions that you have been able to accomplish on the basis of the annual intensity and absolute targets that have been derived from the methodology. And we set it towards uh, a goal of 2020. I can tell you our CEO had never set a 10-year goal in his life. And when I brought this to him, he loved it intellectually. I, I think that's why he signed off on it. Um, and so we then made it publicly available and open source. We've since had 150 companies come to us. And this is, by the way, not our business. This is for fun. Um, we have had 150 companies come to us and say they would like to uh, test and use this tool. EMC has adopted it. SAP put it in their software. Uh, and since, the WRI and um, CDP have initiated a uh, new organization called uh, Science-Based Targets. And they will actually be announcing tomorrow the first draft of guidance for companies to set science-based targets. Uh, I had the pleasure of serving on the advisory council for that. And some of that is, builds upon the work um, that we did with CFACT. And there's the uh, description of that. It was initially called Mind the Science, Mind the Gap, which I think is a very clever title. But they've renamed it to Science-Based Targets. So I want to uh, stop there.
Uh, in terms of CFACT, because that is, as I said, something we did for fun and for our own operations, but our own operations in the scheme of things really don't matter. It's our products that matter. We serve 13 million engineers, civil engineers, architects, designers, the world over. And so in part as a segue to my colleague John Williams of Impact Infrastructure, I want to show you a different type of tool. And this is a tool that we sell as opposed to give away. Um, and this is a solution that we call green stormwater infrastructure and flood control. And if I could just initiate the uh, demo, Daniel. So here you're now in one of our design tool environments. Um, so you're no longer in exclusively a web-based tool like CFACT. Okay, you're in, you're in a, um, a combination of a desktop and a cloud-based tool called InfraWorks. And what you'll see is us sketching in the context of the city of San Francisco on a site that happens to be highly impervious and subject to significant runoff, runoff being the largest contributor to surface water contamination in the US. And as a result, many municipalities subject to um, fines under the EPA Clean Water Act. And what we're doing here is defining, we're really just playing, we're sketching, but on a real canvas. So some of my colleagues refer to this as playing SimCity with real data. <laughs> and what we're doing is we're assigning different forms of, in the US, what's called low impact development, in uh, other parts of the world referred to as green infrastructure. But the idea is really to mimic the way natural systems contend with precipitation and to make better use of that water on site to slow it down, to filter it, and to reduce the amount of water that ultimately ends up at great cost to all of us as taxpayers at the wastewater treatment plant. So my colleague Brian Young is in this demonstration playing with the tool to introduce filter strips, rain gardens, uh, a green roof to this school property. And the defaults in the tool are all based upon what the EPA recommends in terms of low impact development techniques like rain gardens and green roofs and how they behave under different what are called design storms or the amount of precipitation that you would get over a 24 hour period. What I think is most important to notice is down here in the results section, um, which is showing you how the runoff volume is changing. So you'll see it, he had a runoff volume of almost an inch when he started. But as he's working, the tool is in real time simulating the improvements to that space, how much more pervious he's making that space. And he's managed, as you can see, to get the runoff volume to zero. He's also managed to get himself a number of lead points and envision points, which I think John will probably mention is the new lead for infrastructure, for those of you are, who are familiar with lead. Uh, and so it's benchmarking as one is designing. And I think these, hi Michelle, I think these sorts of tools are incredibly important even though they may not be web-based, they may not be quite as accessible to all as something that Daniel might design for example. But our idea is to take what comes out of the biological literature, landscape architecture world, and put it in the hands of civil engineers who otherwise would feel no confidence whatsoever in considering these green infrastructure techniques in lieu of gray infrastructure techniques. So with that, I'll stop and take any questions, and then I think this is a very nice segue into John's tool because we were actually partners in crime. Well, that's coming up. My name is John Williams. I'm with Impact Infrastructure. We have offices in New York City and Toronto. We're also in a partnership with uh, Emma and her company at Autodesk. 
I'm going to talk about infrastructure, and uh, I don't think, I'm guessing that many of you in the room really aren't that interested in infrastructure, but whether you represent an, an, uh, an HP or a public entity, there are buildings involved in your operations. There is infrastructure involved in what you do. And a lot of those decisions are big-time investment decisions, and some of them have a, uh, the potential to impact the environment or improve the environment in general. So I'm going to talk about, just for a few moments, about infrastructure and buildings. Uh, if for no other reason, it's a multi-trillion dollar worldwide market. It's enormous, enormous, and it's a source of both massive costs and potential massive benefits when it comes to sustainability and climate change. And often the decisions that a company or a community will make relative to infrastructure either put it in a position for really good long-term outcomes or really poor long-term outcomes. And by the way, once you built that building, you're stuck with it for quite a long time. So it really, really matters. Uh, I also want to point out that we're, we're definitely talking about tools today. One of the advantages that, that I have in my talk is I'm not talking about let's come up with a, a standard. There is a standard that exists, a global default standard in infrastructure and buildings. It's called cost-benefit analysis. It's been around for more than a century. If you're going to evaluate the value of an infrastructure or building project, you use cost-benefit analysis. Now, the problem is it's complicated, it's time-consuming, and therefore it's expensive. And often it's not even done unless you're dealing with a very large project and then it's done how many times? One time to sell the project. Once the project's sold, the report, which costs fifty to $250,000, goes on a shelf. The project proceeds through detailed planning, design, construction, commissioning, long-term operations, and it's often has hardly anything to do with what was sold in the first place in the business case. So really, other than selling it, what real good did that business case analysis do? And so what Emma and my company are up to is we're, we're trying to find a way to, to take advantage of the fact that we already have a standard and we also have tools that will feed us the data. I think you mentioned earlier, you know, we need something that gives us the data. I think you mentioned that. Well, those tools actually exist and they come in the form of a solution that you'll hear about soon called ABC or automated business cases. And ABC is, a, is a, a joint offering between Impact Infrastructure and Autodesk that's designed to help building owners or infrastructure sponsors or architects or engineers or for that matter, the financial community determine the complete value story associated with your building or your, your transit project. And when I say complete, I mean the financial returns, the economic, the social, environmental, and resilience returns as well. So that's ABC. We're going to talk about that a little bit more now. Uh, it's going to be, a, it's coming out, the commercial version is coming out in the fall. And what it does is it automates via a cloud-based tool, it automates business case analysis and cost-benefit analysis, and it harvests data through building information modeling tools or BIM tools. So you heard about InfraWorks a moment ago. There's also Civil 3D. There's Revit. They're all BIM tools that are the default standard globally as well for project analysis. And so what we've done is we've made it possible for the, the business case to be informed by the professionals that are working on the project and, and basically, bless you, 
basically upload data into the cloud and then run real-time business cases and then feed it back down to the planning or the project sponsor's team. So that you, you do the business case early on, right, when you would do a custom study, but you also do it each time you make a decision on the project. So you go from one type of building construction to another. Push the button, run ABC, run the business case. See what the comprehensive value of the project is. And keep doing that through each detail of the delivery process and through the life of the project so that you can do reporting and uh, monitoring and reporting, okay? So it calculates the financial and sustainable returns associated with the project. It also divides those costs and benefits by stakeholder groups. So in every project, there's always a winner or winners, and there are also losers. Someone gives something up. And so you've got a benefit or a cost pie, right? And what we do with these tools, we say who wins and who lose, loses, and how much do they win or lose, and we say it in risk-adjusted dollars. Okay, so one of the biggest risks to a building or an infrastructure project is uh, project delay. If you take a $100 million project and delay it because a stakeholder is not happy for three months, you're into real money, real money. You delay it for a year, you're into millions of dollars, so you can see why that matters. So the, the other important thing about ABC is we're enabling project sponsors or people who own the project to work with a common standard so that they can have comparability between their analysis and someone else's project and also so that they're not defending where did the data come from or what did you base that conclusion on. Well, it's based, A, on cost-benefit analysis that's informed by meta-review research, high-quality peer-review data. It also automates the process so you can do it quickly or real-time, and it also puts planning and design professionals into a position where they can be more helpful to their clients. Don't just provide drawings, provide the case for the project, whether it's a positive or a negative case. And finally, it helps to reduce the burden of due diligence. So if you're in the financial sector, one of the big problems with impact investing in infrastructure projects is the, the, the burden of due diligence and the lack of capacity to do that due diligence. This informs the due diligence process and makes it far less of a burden. Uh, what we're really doing is we're making business case analysis practical at any scale, whether it's a $5 million project or a $5 billion project, it really does not matter when using these tools because it's an automated process. The, the ability to provide real-time assessments also gives our users an opportunity to tune their planning and design. So you think the concrete scenario is a better scenario, well, what about steel or what about another type of material? Let's run the business case each time to see the financial, economic, social, environmental resiliency outcomes so you can say, ah, that wasn't as good a decision as I thought. Let's not make that decision or let's make more of that decision because it's going to make the project, give the project a, a far greater overall return. And then also one thing that I've noticed and I bet you have too is there's just not enough money to go around to do all the projects that need to be done. So at some point, somebody's going to set priorities. And what are they going to base those priorities on? They should base them on your ability to articulate the costs and benefits associated with the project. 
right? That's what they should do. And more and more, they will be doing that. As I said, I'm going to move quickly through this, Daniel. We're not creating a standard. We're using the worldwide standard already. And what I provided here is just a little genesis just over the last few years of where cost-benefit analysis is being used to inform major decision making. So whether it's the federal tiger grant program, huge program, or if it's something called the SROI framework, which I was one of the creators of sustainable return on investment framework. That is available in the public domain, by the way. And then the Urban Sustainability Directors Network has something called a triple bottom line calculator that was issued in 2010, has not been updated since then. It's also built on cost-benefit analysis and SROI. Then the Institute for Sustainable Infrastructure's Envision Rating System. Emma mentioned this. This is like the lead version. Uh, a, a, it's, it's a hor um, horizontal construction or infrastructure rating system that's an equivalent to LEED, but they call it Envision. That's using something called a business case evaluator that is built on all those experiences and was built by my company. Uh, version 1 was released in, uh, at Harvard in 2013. Version 2.01 was released in uh, early part of this year. It consists of a, an Excel-based spreadsheet, a user manual, and complete documentation. Uh, it's free of charge. Anyone here can use it if you like. If, if you want, ask me afterward. I'll give you the uh, link to it. Uh, the BCE is focusing on uh, specifically on infrastructure in building sectors. Uh, we're starting with stormwater management. We're moving on to transit, highways, bridges, energy, uh, other types of building projects and environmental projects. These are all to be done between now and the end of 2016. So metrics specifically designed for each of these types of facilities will be available. So it's not like trying to ram a square peg into a round hole. You know, it's, it's, it's metrics for transit, metrics for energy, metrics for hospitals, for instance. And then most recently, or what's coming up this fall, is the uh, commercial release of the first ABC solution, which is a stormwater management tool that, again, the first of a series of tools within a portfolio. These are automated tools. These tools interface with BIM products like InfraWorks and Civil 3D to harvest that data I talked about during each phase of the project to not only capture the financial story but the full uh, sustainability story and to provide real-time assessments. Okay, so our, our, we have one common unit that, that our bottom line output is stated in its dollars or uh, risk-adjusted monetary units. Uh, now, there are certain things that are not that easy to measure, as we've you've said already in this session. A lot of things are not that easy to measure, but there are a lot more things that could be measured than you know if you account for uncertainty, okay? And that's what we do. We use Monte Carlo simulations to address uncertainty and risk. So we never give you one number. We give you a range of probabilities and numbers that go across that range. Uh, we also provide the multiple beneficiary cost-benefit analysis account that I mentioned a moment ago. We, have, uh, we pr produce a project-specific value for money, bottom line outcome. If you work in Canada, that's, that's more prevalent in Canada right now. Uh, what we're doing is we want people to make decisions based on optimal outcomes. Not made up outcomes, but optimal outcomes. And ultimately, we want to answer this question, what's in it for me? Everybody's got a different 
mindset. We want them to see the value in the project for themselves. Quickly, these are outputs from real live projects. This is uh, Tucson and Pima, Arizona. The main thing you should look at it on this slide are these curves. We call these the sustainability S-curves. The blue line is the financial return associated with the project across a range of probabilities. The red line is financial plus economic, social, and environmental equals sustainable return on investment across the range. The reason this line is more stretched out is because there's less certainty about the numbers here. The reason that's not quite as stretched is because the financial things are a little more simple. We inform these analyses. We go right back to the planning and design drawings that are all automated through BIM so our users can, in essence, fill in some blanks and push some buttons and suddenly our models become intelligent. Just to give you examples of the granular detail that we get into here, these are both costs and benefits of a whole range of different strategies. And we'll make this presentation available to you, so don't, don't strain your eyes, don't worry that I'm moving quickly. Uh, more examples of the outputs uh, that were reported to uh, Pima and Tucson County. I can tell you that they, they love this tool because for once they can explain the value of green to their constituents. Okay, the value of green in monetary terms and how that value is divided amongst different types of impacts or benefits and then how it's divided amongst uh, different stakeholder groups. So environmental stakeholders, economic or business stakeholders, uh, customers, the government itself, other direct financial beneficiaries, the community, et cetera. You can imagine these tools are powerful when you're, when you're dealing with stakeholders. Uh, the other example I have for you is the Trinity River Vision Authority, a big stormwater management agency down in Texas. These are the types of things they ask us to analyze on our analysis of their project. More examples of the granularity of the outputs. And by the way, these reports, uh, Trinity and the Pima-Tucson report, we can give you a link to show you where you can actually read the report yourself. Uh, again, comparing different strategies and different outcomes. Uh, and even the funding scenario. What are the scenarios that could be used in this particular case? You can see it involves a combination of public and private monies, capital. A uh, couple of exa other examples of costs and benefits. And let me just show you, uh, I think there, as I said, there are certain things that are hard to, to calculate. For instance, uh, aesthetic value. Well, we definitely calculated a value for aesthetic value, and we basically have told you the method that we've used. If you read the report, you can see these things for all of the categories. So we're not just making this up, or we don't have an economist locked in a closet doing this. We have them doing other things, but they're not, you know, with a cauldron stirring. They, they're actually using credible uh, methodologies. Uh, I call this the ultimate show and tell. I, I started out my career as a community liaison, and it was tough. And we wasted years on a half billion dollar project because, you know, the time to go through all these questions and concerns. If we could just model these things real time, which we can now, and show them the actual results both in dollars and in design and in actual visual outcomes, then the stakeholders really get it. They understand why they need to move in favor of the project. Now, in the future, in the very near future, this is what you're going to see 3D multi-dimensional uh, analysis and simulation so that 
this was actually a product of not an Autodesk person ran this. One of our economists in one hour took publicly available data and created a, a duplication, basically a model of Lower Manhattan. And on top of this model, we can run different infrastructure building scenarios and show you what the business case is for each of those scenarios. So isn't that exciting? And it's all the standard. It's just harvesting data and speeding the process up. Let's see, just another example. This uh, simulation was done in Central Park, again, just in a very short period of time. And you can see we're starting to run economic assessments here, and we're determining really where uh, our risk is and where our rewards are. Uh, just to, I think this is the last slide. Going back to those stakeholders, again, this is an example of a real live project where we basically broke out the different types of value for different groups, and then we explain what they are, and then we show it in dollars and cents. And so it's, it's very powerful, and again, real time. So this data is available now if you want to do custom cost-benefit analysis. It will be available through an automated low-cost solution very soon. In fact, by the end of this year, we'll have the first package out. But uh, it gives us all the ability to do comprehensive business case analysis. And project sponsors will provide the data if the financial community asks for it if, or if the building owners want to see the case. We'll provide this data for them. So anyway, that wasn't two minutes, but it was as close as I could get, Daniel. Okay. Thank you. Any questions?